So, um, I'm going to go ahead uh, and dismiss uh, second through fourth graders. Uh, yeah, teachers, you better uh, get over there too. <laughs> I'm going to go ahead and dismiss them, uh, this, the second through fourth graders, over into uh, the children's wing. And just so you know, every Sunday morning during this time is that they um, are spiritually challenged uh, in age-appropriate ways for them to know what it means to walk with Jesus and learn about Jesus. And so, um, again, they're going to be joining us uh, on the fourth Sunday. Actually, the preteens are going to be in here uh, and learning how to participate in worship with adults. So it's a really important thing. So if you've not been to Etch on Wednesday nights, okay, we've had uh, a great first few weeks kicking off. I want you to envision this. I want you to envision that we have over 60 kids registered for Wednesday Night Etch, Knights Club. And uh, it's a wonderful thing. Uh, if you've ever been back in the wing and the rooms, and it's like, oh, these are nice, spacious rooms. Well, you get 60 kids back there and a few adults, not so nice and spacious. So the challenge we're faced with uh, as we continue to look at space is how do we find uh, appropriate spaces for these kids to be in to learn about Jesus. And one of the things that we're facing doing is taking a classroom of many and dividing it up into two classrooms. Well, guess what? You can't just put kids in a classroom without adults. One of the things that I want to lay before you is um, an opportunity to make a difference. I shared this in first service as well. Many of you are serving in this capacity, but we uh, really uh, are looking for those to fulfill some of those roles so that we can continue to engage with these children and teach them about Jesus. If you uh, have something to offer, and let me just tell you, every one of you do, I encourage you to talk to Miss Colleen. Um, it's a great problem to have too many kids, uh, is, and it's not a problem. It's something that we have to embrace, so I encourage you uh, to take a look at that. I want us to pray uh, this morning um, continually for the devastation down in um, both of the Carolinas, and specifically this morning, I want to pray for the churches down there. You know, we come in every Sunday, and yeah, we got, we got a few leaky spots in the roof, and that's being worked on, but we still have a place to gather, still a place to meet, and some of those churches are facing that they, they don't have anywhere. Their church buildings have been destroyed, but here's what we know about God. The church has not been destroyed God reigns, and so we want to pray for them as they walk through this season, really challenging, uh, just finding a place to worship. So let's pray, if you would bow your heads with me. Father, as we gather this morning, Lord, we don't want to forget about all of our brothers and sisters down in the Carolinas. I know for many at ECOB, there are family and friends uh, who live down in that area, and God, um, we pray for the church Pray for the church in that area that even in a time of uncertainty, even in a time of, of a completely different schedule and just the normalcy of coming together and gathering together as believers has just been disrupted. Father, I pray that you would use this, this devastation to raise your church up, not only in the Carolinas, but throughout this country. Lord, use us in whatever way you call us. Help us to listen and be attentive to not just tangible needs, but also spiritual needs. Lord, we want to do that in our community, but we also know the responsibility of reaching out to those um, in other areas. So, Father, protect them. May the church thrive in that area right now. 
Not because of facilities, but because of the movement of your spirit. Keep it on our hearts, Lord, that as it fades from the news headlines, is that we would not allow it to face from our prayer lives. Thank you, Jesus. Care for them. In Jesus Christ's name we pray. Amen. We're going to be in Luke 22 this morning, and we're going to be beginning a new series for a couple weeks, and this series is called The Upper Room. And Part of the reason I wanted to do this series at this time is, you know, if we were in Holy Week, if we were even um, in Lent season, this would be like, oh yeah, obviously we do a series on the upper room. We do a series of that setting and time there right before Jesus' crucifixion and death. But I wanted to do it in this setting uh, of of, uh, the calendar Because I think there are times when we're used to things happening at a certain time and we celebrate those and we talk about those, but sometimes it becomes da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da. Sometimes when we look at it at a different time, it it can spark in us something we perhaps hadn't been seen before. The upper room is that place that became very significant right before Jesus was turned over to the authorities. And in order to understand what's taking place in that setting, we have to understand that what's happened before and what's about to happen. So this is the Passover feast. It is the time every year that the Israelites, the Jews, gathered to remember and celebrate. Now Jesus had celebrated Passovers the 33-some years of his life. He had likely celebrated the Passover feast with some of the apostles as they have been with him in ministry for about three or so years. But this one was going to be very different. And as we go into it and look at it, I want us to recognize some lessons. We're going to spend three weeks. We're going to, we're going to talk about the meal today. Next week, we're going to talk about another component, which was the foot washing. And then the final week, we're going to talk about the bread and the cup. The communion. And in each of those things, Jesus teaches the apostles. He prepares them for what is to about to come. But what I believe is beneficial for us as the church today is that he is also preparing us. And he's preparing us, helping us understand for what it means to live in the kingdom of God. That's a phrase that you hear thrown around in churches all the time. The kingdom of God is simply the kingdom under God's rule and reign. The kingdom of God was initiated at Jesus' resurrection. When ultimate deliverance came to everyone. That was the beginning. We are still living in that part of the kingdom. But the kingdom is not yet fully uh, realized. If you look in Scripture, particularly in Revelations, you look in Thessalonians, you talk about, you see and read and learn about Jesus' second coming. It is when we all will be judged. It is when God then will do away with all evil. It is then that we all have to answer to Jesus. And it is then that he will establish a new heaven and a new earth where there's no more tears, there's no more pain, there's no more sin, there's no more death. 
Oh, I can't wait. I can't wait. So what do we do in the meantime? We read in Scripture that Jesus is coming back. And that may be this afternoon. It may be in the midst of this sermon. We don't know. But what we know is that we are not put on this earth. We have not been given deliverance through Jesus Christ to live in the kingdom like, oh, can't wait till it comes. I'm just going to hang out in the meantime because I've got Jesus. Yeah, you do. I hope. And in that, there are responsibilities for kingdom living. What does it mean? Why is God allowing this time to happen? It's because he wants his church to live in the kingdom and model it to people. So how do we do that? That's what these lessons are going to be about over the next couple of weeks. Lessons that Jesus is helping to prepare the apostles of that time, but also are for us in this time until his second coming. And so the first lesson is on unity. Now, everybody likes the word unity. I mean, who wants to live a life of disunity? Yeah, I know you may think you know people who like living in disunity. They always like conflict. I mean, come on. Every one of us has been designed, no matter how far from God we are, there is something in us that is designed that says, I want to live in unity because I've been created to live in unity. It's a great idea. But often in this culture, it gets hijacked. Why does it get hijacked? Just because of the bad people? No. It's because we live in a sin-fallen world. Sometimes we misunderstand unity. Sometimes we are the, we are the disunifying element. And so what do we do with it? How do we learn to be as one? And how do we, how do we unify? People have a lot of ideas about how to unify. Well, just have a good cause and just rally around it. Hmm. There seems to be something more than that because I've seen a lot of good clauses that rally for a moment and then they're gone. And so Jesus brings the apostles into this upper room. They have some suspicion that things are going on. He's already alluded to some things. Let's pick up in verse 7 of chapter 22 of Luke. Then came the day of unleavened bread on which the Passover lamb had to be sacrificed. Jesus sent Peter and John saying, Go and make preparations for us to eat the Passover. Where do you want us to prepare for it? They asked. Jesus replied, As you enter the city, a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him to the house that he enters and say to the owner of the house, The teacher asked, where is the guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? He will show you a large room upstairs, all furnished. Make preparations there. They left and found things just as Jesus had told them, so they prepared the Passover. Verse 14. When the hour came, Jesus and his apostles reclined at the table, and he said to them, I eagerly, I have eagerly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it again until it finds fulfillment in the kingdom of God. After taking the cup, he gave thanks and said, Take this and divide it among you. For I tell you, I will not drink it again. I will not drink again from the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. This lesson on unity, I believe Jesus teaches in some different ways. 
We know Jesus teaches a lot by talking, but teaches, Jesus teaches a lot by what he does, by how he points things out. It's always not a nice three-point lesson. I think there's some things we see in here that scream what Jesus calls us to live in the kingdom. And they're about unity. Look at verse 14 with me. When the hour came, Jesus and his apostles reclined at the table. They had done this before. It was not new at all. Not only for a Passover feast, but goodness, they've been, they've been walking around. They have been ministering. They have been traveling for three and a half years. And so in that time, they spent a lot of times at the table together. And there's something about when you get people not only around a table, but when there is a shared experience. We've talked about the power of a meal for shared experience. But there's something in this that is unlike other shared experiences. There's something different than just a group of people sitting at a stands watching a football game. That can be a whole lot of fun. There's nothing wrong with it. There's some shared experience, especially when a team comes back and wins the game. And you're celebrating, you're hugging people you don't know, you know, because you're so excited. But even in that, shared experience is not the same than what was happening that night. And it was because they were at Jesus' table. You see, Jesus had gone to great efforts to prepare for that time. It was a time in a city of Jerusalem. Typically when the Passover took place, it would be a city that was around 30,000 people. And it would blow up at this time for the Passover feast to be over 100,000 people is the estimate. Let's just say it's bigger than the pork festival, okay? Now I know we get a lot. But the city just swelled. But Jesus took such great effort to prepare because he was protecting what was happening. And they gathered and they came together and it was his table. It was his table. He had called them together. Yeah, they would have gathered somewhere else for a Passover feast. That's what good Jewish people did. But Jesus had called this one. They were going to eat it with Jesus. So Jesus was going to be the focus. When Jesus is at the table, he better be the focus. And so they sat together. And you know, when we sit together and have a meal, there's some sort of uh, a symbolism about us unifying with others at the table. And so they gathered. And they're preparing for the Passover feast. And if you've never done just, even just a topical study on the Passover feast, I encourage you to do it. We'll be talking about it over the next few weeks. But this Passover feast was a time of remembering and celebrating what God had done for their ancestors in bringing the Israelites out of Egypt. So when, when God was delivering them out of Egypt the night before, he required all of the Israelites to kill a lamb, a perfect lamb. It was a sacrifice, and they took the blood, and then they put it over the doorpost, the blood of the lamb, over the doorpost. And what that signified to God was, these are my people, I will pass over. In other words, they are committing to me, they are obedient to me, and so I will pass over those who didn't face the wrath of God. And so here, generations later, once again, they're celebrating what God had not only done for them, but for their ancestors. And 
they were spending time together to remember. Remember their families. Remember what God had done through them. Much, maybe a little bit like we do a family reunion, but for different purposes. And so they're here and they're gathered. And in that, they kept looking back to this shared experience. They kept looking back to not only their times together remembering, but what their ancestors experienced. You know, on mission trips, there's something about when you pack up a group of adults or teenagers or both, for that matter, and you put them in a couple of vans and you go away and your focus is to serve in the name of Jesus. It becomes so much. And I, over the years, I've just been amazed, not only adult trips, but, but even youth trips, just amazed what God does in that setting. And it's because it's a shared experience where Jesus is the focus. What I wonder for us, as we, as we live in the kingdom, as we work together to accomplish his mission, is how else that is experienced. Some of it is experienced on a Sunday morning. This is not like a football gathering. This is not like any other gathering of common interest. There's something more, and it's because of our focus. Our focus in this shared experience is to meet with Jesus. When we come and serve, whether it's teaching or serving coffee or holding drawers, we do that, we should do that, to meet with Jesus and that shared experience of walking with him is what unity, what then results in unity. It's, it's that God has called us. You know, these men had experienced so many things in the three and a half years. They experienced hunger. They experienced no place to sleep. They experienced on and on and on so many things. Rejection, fear of their lives, storms on the water. No fish, tons of fish. They've experienced it all. But in all of that, who was the focus? I mean, when Jesus is walking around with you, it's kind of hard to ignore him, right? <laughs> hmm. We can focus on unity for the sake of unity because it sounds good and it's attractive to people and great unity. But there will be no unity if our unity doesn't start with a shared experience of meeting with Jesus. And that shared experience happens when we're together, but it also happens when each of us meet with Jesus. You do that in your own ways, or it's all kinds of ways to do that. But you either meet with Jesus or you don't meet with Jesus. And a lack of meeting with Jesus, whether it's together or individually, will result in a lack of unity. We must share that experience. As much as I love you all and I love coming to get together with you every week, I don't come because I can see smiles on your face. I come because I am about to share an experience with you with Jesus. People will not come to this church. People will not see Jesus if it's simply about gathering, gathering one time a week just to gather. Look what Hebrews 10 says. Verse 24 and 25. And let us consider how we may spur one another on toward love and good deeds, not giving up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging one another all the more as you see the day approaching. 
when we meet together, together, to gather with Jesus, whether it's independently or it's collectively, we can strengthen one another. We can support one another. We can encourage one another. And we need that. We need that. Because we go through some great, wonderful seasons individually and collectively as the people of God. But we also experience some of the greatest valleys together. Yesterday, we hosted once again a funeral for a National Trail student who was a senior whose life ended way too soon. And there were people here that knew Jesus. I could tell. Without being judgmental, I heard them talk about it. I watched it in the way they cared for each other. They shared a very dark time together. But I've been in many a places with people in dark valleys. And they were not sharing the experience with Jesus. It looks a lot different. It can show perhaps from a certain angle here and a certain angle. It can look like what sharing life with Jesus is. But it doesn't take long for that to fall away. You see, unity is a result of us in a shared experience with Jesus. And in those times, we support one another's faith. We spur one another. It's not encouragement for the sake of making everybody feel happy. No, it's encouragement to say, I know you're in a dark time, but I can tell you God is always and has, will be who he said he is. And I know you can't see him, but he's God. And Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And so, I'm not just going to throw anything at you or tell you to go do something. I'm going to walk with you. I'm going to share this with you. And we're going to look at Jesus. Verse 15. And he said to them, I've eagerly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. Code word. For I tell you, I will need it, eat, not eat it again until it finds fulfillment. Code word. In the kingdom of God. Jesus says a couple things here. And as he speaks to unity in this, not directly, what Jesus is doing is to speak, he is speaking to something that brings unity. It's not just a shared experience, but there is unity in shared belief. Shared belief. Something the Lord's been convicting me a lot of lately, and I have to catch myself, is because. Uh, And part of it is just out of a weariness of hearing people talk about feeling God. Feeling God, does it exist? suppose so. My faith has to be more than feeling God. Because I'll tell you, there's been a whole lot of times I haven't felt God, and I know He has been present. And I know it's true of you too. So what does it come to then? It comes to our belief. And so Jesus is shaping their belief once again. I mean, these guys have walked together. These guys have committed. They've, they've, they've set their families aside. They threw their jobs out the window and said, I will follow you. I mean, most people thought they were lunatics. I can't believe you threw everywhere you had, everything you had away. Oh, I didn't. They didn't. 
They knew they didn't. And once again, Jesus speaks to two things. And the one thing he speaks to, he says, before I suffer. Now, the clues have been getting stronger. As Jesus has walked with his apostles leading up to his crucifixion, the clues have been getting stronger. But this meant different than it would have meant a year before. When he said, I suffer, they knew more than they knew the year before. And so you know that turned their insides. And what Jesus is saying is, do you believe? Do you believe? Do you believe that I have to suffer? In other words, do you believe in my mission? Do you believe that this Passover feast that is represented by the exodus from Egypt is going to take on a whole new meaning. And guess who the perfect lamb of sacrifice is going to be? He suffered. And so Jesus essentially says to them, okay guys, you've walked, you've seen it, I've told you, and you're going to see it in more real ways than ever. Do you believe Not just do you feel. I mean, could you honestly stand at the cross and your Savior is dying and you say, oh man, I feel God. No. You're looking and you're saying, oh my God, what is happening? God, where are you? That's what those people did. They couldn't see it yet. You bet they felt God when they realized he had rose from the dead. But even then, there was confusion about the feelings, right? Is this it? Is it not it? Sounds like life, right? Is Jesus here? Is he not here? I'm not sure if I feel him or not. What do you believe? What do you believe? Do you believe in that cross? Do you believe together? Because I want to tell you something. You will not believe something solely for your sake. You believe it for the sake of the kingdom of God. That's part of the belief. And so as these guys join together, as they realize that this man is now pointing to himself as the sacrificial lamb, there will be a whole new deliverance. A deliverance that will never compare to that pesky little deliverance out of Egypt. Yeah, it was nice and it was good. Oh boy, it was for one people. This is for all people. Look at 1 Peter 1, 18 and 21. Peter Peter shared experience with Jesus with these other guys as he wrote this book, excuse me, as he spent time in understanding the truth. For you know, verse 18 of chapter 1, that it was not with perishable things such as silver or gold that were deemed from the empty way of life handed down to you from your ancestors, but with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect, He was chosen before the creation of the world, but was revealed in these last times for your sake. Through him you believe in God who raised him from the dead and glorified him. And so your faith and hope are in God. Jesus is our unifier. If we look anywhere else, if we believe, you know, you can believe in Jesus as a good guy. But that will not bring unity. But when you believe in Jesus as the Messiah, as the Savior of the world, as the sacrificial lamb, now we're getting somewhere. Now we're getting somewhere. That's where it has to start. Because everything else is disappointing. Everything else is hopeless. 
I watched your youth pastor yesterday participate in um, this memorial service. And um, Josh has spent time this week with that family and friends and students in that school. And I kept telling him, I'm like, oh, I remember. I've been there, I remember. Paul Wessler delivered the message. Paul knew Camden's family because he had been bus driver for him for many years. And he delivered hope. I saw your youth pastor deliver hope in a very different way. He wasn't doing it just to get through and put on a good face for you all as a church. It's because of what he believes. I saw him hugging students and caring for students that just were saying, I don't understand. You see, our belief drives everything. Our feelings can if we let them, but our belief is what drives everything. And it's a different belief. It's a life-saving belief. It is a belief that nothing else in this world can commit to and promise. Thank you. You know, friends, we can believe in a denomination. We can believe in a certain budget. We can believe in a certain staffing. We can believe in certain programs. We can believe in certain emphasis. We can believe and believe and believe. But I'll tell you what, God will not bring us together until we believe first that Jesus is our deliverer. Well, Dan, I believe that. Good. Good. Verse 17. After taking the cup, he gave thanks and said, Take this and divide it among you. For I tell you, I will not drink again from the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. There it is, kingdom of God again. You see, Jesus, as he's sitting in that shared experience, and he's, he's really sharpening their belief. What he's saying, what we're seeing, is that he's reflecting on the great banquet. The one that those of us who believe in Jesus will be sitting at in eternity. And so there's that toil of emotions. Oh, I know what i got to go through, but I can't wait for the great banquet. And even in that, Jesus knows, okay, these guys are going to be tested like these guys have never been tested before. I'm going to be on the cross. I'm going to be in the grave for a little while. And then I'm going to be next to my father in heaven. But I'm not going to be walking with them in body. Except for a few appearances. And so he does this. And I think this is kind of the height of what Jesus is teaching here. As part of the Passover feast, there's known four cups that take place where they drink wine from that cup. This is not a promotion to drink wine, just saying. But he takes the first cup, and some would look at that and say, hey, okay, so the, the communion's starting. No. He takes the first cup, and often what happened in the Passover feast is the father or the host of the meal, 
whoever's hosting it, they'd take that cup and they would uh, raise it up and they would offer maybe a bit what we would consider a toast. But it was a thanksgiving of remembering back to what God had done for them. And then sometimes what happened is that host, the father, to show special honor to someone, is he would take that cup and he would hand his cup to someone. And it was a sign of thanksgiving, it was a sign of appreciation, a sign of honor. And so Jesus does something. He takes his cup and he says, take this and divide it among you. He doesn't give it to one, he gives it to all of them. Unity. It's a symbol of unity. It's a symbol of him as the vine. But I have to ask a question here as I've thought about this. What that means, if you are going to take the cup, if we were sitting at that table and you take that cup, it means that you must trust the one giving the cup. Why else would you take it? What's Jesus put in this thing? Do you believe in who Jesus is? goes back to belief, right? For you to follow Jesus and be obedient to Jesus, you must believe in who he is. You must trust him. And so let's say you trust him and, and, and you take that cup. Well, somewhere along the way, you must believe that what he is giving is worth receiving. Is it worth receiving? And are you going to receive it? So you have to ask yourself, is what Jesus has to offer, his cup, worth receiving? But then it also means that I have to put down my own. You know, isn't it just like us as humans? We want to hold our cup and Jesus' is too? I do that all the time. I may hide mine behind my back a little bit. Got it, Jesus. No, what Jesus wants is for us to be obedient. And part of our obedience is to lay our cup down. Because you will never receive what Jesus has to offer if your cup hasn't been laid down, if you have not surrendered, if you have not given your life, put it down before him to take his cup. And, and then there comes another decision. You've got this cup, and it's the Jesus cup. It's Jesus. I want to hoard him. I want to keep him. You get your own cup from Jesus. He'll have more. His cup overfloweth, you're saying, right? He'll give to you. No, Jesus doesn't say that. Jesus says, take this cup and pass it. Take from it and divide it among you. We can't hoard Jesus. It will not unify us. None of us, none of us have a greater mark or privilege to Jesus than anybody else. So we take what he gives and then we pass it. And we let go knowing he has given all that we need and that others need it as much as we. We have to be open to share. You see that shared obedience. And if you could just imagine that cup walking around, not literally, but passed around the table. As it's passed around the table, can you imagine as each man took a drink how it was like, boom, 
One and one like together. And then another one. And then another one. And then another one. Can you imagine the looks in their eyes? What have we just received together from Jesus? I tell you what. If you forget that, you stand out at that door. Don't greet anybody and just watch and look at the people who walk into this place. They've been given Jesus too. And what Jesus says is that I want you to obey together. I want you to come together and obey me together. We've got to get rid of individual obedience for the sacrifice of collective obedience, which means you will sacrifice something. You will. But if we believe together and we walk together, we will obey together. And nothing will stop God's church. Nothing. We are branches on a vine. And we're connected to one another. But we're not connected because the end of my branch is connected to the end of your branch or your neighbor's branch. We are connected to the vine and is the vine that connects us together. Not because we are together, but because we are in the vine together. That's the church. That's the unity, the oneness that Jesus is speaking of. Ephesians 4.13 is part of, is one of my favorite parts of Scripture. Until we all reach unity in the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. You see, we become more like Jesus when we obey together. Your victories, as beautiful as they are in Jesus individually, are not as sweet as the collective victories of us together in Jesus. God is, obeyed. God is glorified in that. Church, unity cannot be an option for us. Unity cannot be something that we just go after Apart from Jesus. But I tell you, if we more than ever, and not by doing more, but about being intentional. And I'm not just talking about church programs. I'm not just talking about in the church. I'm talking about as we gather in shared experiences. As we sharpen one another. As well as encourage one another. As we help one another obey when it's difficult to obey. We do that. God will do a greater work than ever. And I'll just tell you, as your pastor, the church at Eaton Church, the Brethren, has never needed unity more than right now. And it's not because we're all divided. I'm not saying that. But the enemy is lurking. The enemy is lurking. And it wouldn't take much to divide us right now. And so... Let's heed the word of God, and let's be unified. Father, just as the disciples sat around that table, or just as they sat around that table, Jesus knew what they were facing. Jesus knows, Lord, we know you know what we're facing. It's not just about a denomination. It's not just about 
choosing certain methods or programs. What's at stake here, Lord, is what we believe about you. May we hold more firmly to that than ever. Help us, God. Take this church full of many, many people who love you dearly and gather us together. Remind us what is most important to believe and then lead us through your Holy Spirit to obey. Holy Spirit, lead us. Break down any barriers and lead us. And God, you will be glorified. In Jesus' name, amen. I'm going to invite you to stand and worship.